In my library at home, I have a book entitled, Why Do Clocks Run Clockwise and Other Imponderables? If you have an inquisitive mind, if it's hard for you to say those words, I don't know. If you hate to admit that you've been stumped, then you will love this book. Its author, David Feldman, and his research staff answers 232 bizarre and baffling mysteries. Feldman calls them imponderables. Here's a sample of the questions tackled in the book. Why don't people get goosebumps on their faces? How do cereal manufacturers keep raisins from falling to the bottom of the cereal boxes? Why in any box of assorted chocolates are the caramel square, the nougats rectangular, the nuts oval, and the creams always circular? Why are there 18 holes on a golf course? Why do donuts have holes? Why do you have to dry clean raincoats? How and why do horses sleep standing up? Why can't hair grow on a vaccination mark? And then the one that baffles me, why are the flush handles on a toilet always on the left side? Hey, if you've ever asked any of those questions, get the book. It'll provide you the answers. And yet Feldman admits that there are some imponderables that despite his extensive research remain a riddle. These expert stumpers he calls frustratables. And in my opinion, the Bible is full of frustratables. In fact, if I were making a list, here's what I would include. The triune nature of God. I mean, how can he be three yet one? And yet he is. Creation, ex nihilo, or out of nothing. The parting of the Red Sea. The manna from heaven. The long day of Joshua. Jesus multiplying the loaves and the fish. And walking on water and raising Lazarus. His resurrection, his ascension. Folks have pondered these events for centuries. And yet they remain as mysterious now as when they occurred. But there is one biblical imponderable. I mean, a true frustratable that stretches the limits of our logic further than all the others. We come face to face with it every Christmas season. It is the miracle of the virgin birth. How could a woman, no matter how fertile her womb, bear a child having never had sexual relations? The great reformer Martin Luther once wrote, and he did so in a tongue-in-cheek manner, the incarnation consists of three miracles. The first, that God became man. The second, that a virgin was a mother. And the third, that the heart of man should believe this. Even with the tremendous advances in the field of reproductive science, fertility drugs and in vitro fertilization and test tube babies and cloning, etc., etc., nothing even remotely helps us to explain the mechanics of the virgin birth. The advances in obstetrics are marvelous, but they're all explicable, at least to an educated mind. But the virgin birth is not just marvelous, it is miraculous. You know, when we see a wide receiver dive and catch a ball that most players can't reach, or a basketball player make a shot off balance, we call it a miracle, but it's not. 
I mean, when we undergo a medical procedure that 50 years ago was unimaginable, we call it a miracle, but technically it's not. A new gizmo gets released, and we label it a miracle, but in the truest sense of the word, it's not. A real miracle is a phenomena that's impossible to explain in scientific terms. It goes beyond the scope of science. It can't be replicated in a Petri dish or studied under a microscope. A genuine miracle is an event that depends on God's direct intervention. The truly miraculous are not just improvements in technology or breakthroughs in science. A real miracle usurps natural laws to accomplish divine purposes. Miracles baffle the intellect. They drive us to our knees. We're forced to face our limits. Real miracles bring us to the brink of understanding, but the beginnings of faith. The inquisitive, the technical, the mechanical, the analytical mind must give up in the face of a genuine miracle. One can never figure out what only faith can grasp. Tertullian, the second century Latin apologist, he once made this comment. He said, I believe because it is absurd. You see, it was the fact that he couldn't figure it all out. The power of God, the person of Jesus, the claims of Christianity, that's what drew him to Christian faith. And I agree. If God's ways can be deciphered by my little pea brain, he's not much of a God, is he? If God can't frustrate my thinking, then he's not a God worth serving. Philosopher Dr. Mortimer Adler became a Christian at the age of 82 years old. He made the following statement, I believe Christianity is the only logical, consistent faith in the world, but there are elements to it that can only be described as mystery. My chief reason for choosing Christianity was because the mysteries were incomprehensible. What's the point of revelation if we can figure it out ourselves? If it were wholly comprehensible, it would just be another philosophy. You see, a miracle puts my whole life in perspective. A miracle reminds me of who God is and who I am. Up against a miracle, my wisdom, it appears so naive. My intellect seems pretty puny. My mental powers are really weak. While up against a miracle, God appears more godlike. You see, Christmas is a time for humbling our hearts and our heads and marveling at a miracle. A virgin conceived. The Word was made flesh. Or as the Greeks called it, the logos, the ultimate reason behind all of life, was revealed in skin and blood and bone. As the scientists call it today, the unified theory, the theory of everything was revealed in a man named Jesus. God added humanity to his deity. He became a man. Think of it. The ancient of days became a child of time. The infinite became an infant. The creator became a kid. How did it happen? Well, the details are sketchy, but here's what I know. The Spirit of God overshadowed a virgin's womb. The seed of the spiritual impregnated a human egg. The divine seed planted into human soil. 
the human and the divine mingled and blended and became one. It was a miracle of the highest order. And you know, that's as far as I go. To me, it's inappropriate to probe any further. Here we stand on holy ground. You remember from the blazing bush on the side of Mount Sinai, God told Moses, take your sandals off your feet, for the place you stand is holy ground. Well, the virgin birth is another reason to slip off your sandals. It's not for us to scrutinize this divine mystery. We need to stand in awe of God's omnipotence and God's wisdom. Christmas is not a time to be analytical or technical. Christmas is a time to gawk at God. The angel knew that Jesus, I'm sorry, that Joseph was a man of faith. Jesus' foster father, he didn't need an explanation to believe. All he needed was a reminder of God's promise. After the angel's visit to Joseph, the gospel writer Matthew puts it into context. Matthew chapter 1 verse 22 tells us, So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, and then he quotes our text this morning, Isaiah 7 verse 14, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Seven centuries before Jesus was born to Mary and Joseph in Bethlehem, his miraculous conception was spoken of. It was predicted by the Hebrew prophet Isaiah. And we find it here in chapter 7, verse 14. Originally, this promise of Emmanuel was to the kings of Judah, of which Ahaz, King Ahaz, was a representative. At the time of Ahaz, Judah was under attack by several invading armies. And King Ahaz was petrified. I mean, he was horrified. It was the prophet Isaiah who came to Ahaz to reassure him that God is in control, that God would deliver his people. And to confirm it, King Ahaz could ask for a sign. Notice here in chapter 7, let's read verse 10. Moreover, the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask for yourself from the Lord your God. Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Ask it either in the depth or in the height above. In other words, ask God to do something supernatural to confirm his promise. That's a pretty amazing command. I mean, God is going to assure Ahaz of his deliverance through a sign of the king's own choosing. He can ask for the most outlandish sign imaginable, and God will do it. If this offer were made to you, what imponderable, what frustratable would you choose? What kind of sign would you ask for? Drop a million dollars on it. Have the moon brush the earth. Roll back the clock. Lord, Rewrite the tech game so that Georgia's kickoff goes out of the end zone. What sign would you choose? But Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Now we, lay, we learn from Ahaz's track record that this was a false humility. For he had already decided to strike an alliance with the Assyrians. The king had more faith in his political movers, maneuvers than he did in the power of God. This offer must have pricked his conscience. 
despite his unbelief, God wanted to prove himself and his faithfulness to Ahaz. King, though, was already leaning away from God. So, since Ahaz refused to name a sign, God does it for him. We're told, then he, Isaiah said, Hear now, O house of David, is it a small thing for you to weary men? But will you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. And notice Isaiah takes this matter of a sign beyond the current local situation. The immediate politics provoke this prophecy. But it's as if God knew it would be wasted on Ahaz. And so he broadens its implications to the whole house of David. This sign to Ahaz will reveal not only a message to this king, but it will reveal a message to the kings of the Davidic dynasty. It will even speak to generations throughout history. And what does God choose as a sign for King Ahaz? Well, it's more bizarre than anything Ahaz or you and I would have dreamed up on our own. Isaiah writes in verse 14, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel, or God with us. What a sign indeed. Hey, if God can cause a virgin named Mary to conceive a son, then there's no question that he can get King Ahaz and Judah out of hot water with their enemies. That's interesting. Be aware that in Isaiah 7, verse 14, the Hebrew term translated virgin is the word Alma. And there are skeptics who will say that Alma doesn't necessarily mean virgin in the sense that we know it. It can mean a young girl of marriageable age, and that's true. But often the word does mean virgin, a young girl who's never had relations with a man. In fact, Alma appears seven times in the Old Testament, and in four of those seven passages, the context is without a doubt speaking of a girl who has never had sexual relations. The three other uses of the word are less clear, but still probably relate to virgin girls. Besides, this birth was a sign to Ahaz. And what kind of a sign is it for a young woman of marriageable age to give birth to a child? I mean, that was an everyday occurrence. A sign is an extraordinary event. It attracts attention. It indicates that God is up to something special. All doubt about the meaning of the word Alma is eliminated or was eliminated in 270 B.C., when the Old Testament was translated into Greek. It was a translation known as the Septuagint. You see, the Septuagint renders the Hebrew word Alma with the Greek word Parthenos, which was a strong term. It was an unequivocal reference to a virgin woman. And here's the icing on the cake. When Matthew quotes Isaiah 7 verse 14, and records it in his gospel under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he also uses the term Parthenos. Obviously, both Isaiah and Matthew, when they wrote virgin, a true virgin girl is exactly what they meant. Well, notice Isaiah continues to write of Emmanuel in verse 15. He says, Curds and honey he shall eat, that he may know to refuse evil and choose the good. 
For before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that you dread will be forsaken by both her kings. Curds and honey were the equivalent of baby food. Thus Isaiah is saying that before this miraculous virgin-born child reaches adulthood, Judah's northern neighbors, Syria and Israel, will no longer be a serious military threat. You see, it would be 730 years before the child of this prophecy was born. Yet if Jesus had been born that very day, the time frame would have still been valid. A Jewish boy celebrates his bar mitzvah, or his passage from childhood to adulthood, around the age of 12. But it was a little less than a dozen years that the Assyrians would wipe out both Syria and Israel, both of Judah's enemies would be toppled. Of course, some folks ask, how can an event 730 years into the future be assigned to a man in the present? Well, the point of the prophecy was to introduce Ahaz in the nation Judah to the person Emmanuel. He would be born of a virgin seven centuries in the future, but Jesus was active at that very moment. God's son was Emmanuel from the dawn of time, not just at his birth. And in the Old Testament, Emmanuel appeared at various times and for various reasons. Here he comes to defend Ahaz. We'll learn about it next Sunday when we study chapters 8. In that chapter, we learn that it was Emmanuel who drew a sword and who fended off the invading armies of Assyria. You see, the Emmanuel that would be born later in Bethlehem had been active in the life of the nation 700 years earlier. While the sign that demonstrated, what this sign demonstrated was who he really was and what he ultimately would come to do, but that wouldn't be revealed until the virgin had conceived and bore a son. It's interesting, there are other Old Testament passages that also affirm God's promise of the Savior's virgin birth. The miracle is spoken of in several places. Genesis 3 anticipates the ultimate conflict between the Savior and Satan. God speaks to the serpent in verse 15 of Genesis 3. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. In other words, hostility will exist between Eve's offspring and Satan's offspring. Satan will bruise Eve's son, but in turn, he will crush Satan. This occurred on the cross of Jesus. In essence, Jesus got a nasty heel bruise while Satan got his skull crushed. And yet, notice the wording in Genesis 3. It refers to Jesus as the seed of the woman. This is the only time in Scripture which speaks of a woman possessing a seed. The man supplies the seed, not the woman. Obviously, Genesis 3 verse 15 is predicting some kind of a miracle, a unique, special, supernatural birth. Also consider Jeremiah chapter 31 verse 22. There we read, For the Lord has created a new thing in the earth. A woman shall encompass a man. The Hebrew rabbis, they wrote long before the coming of Jesus, but they understood this verse to refer to the birth of a son by supernatural means. One rabbi explained it this way, Messiah is to have no earthly father. Another rabbi stated, The birth of Messiah will be without defect. The birth of the Messiah will be like that of no other man. 
In a third rabbinical interpretation, the birth of Messiah will be like the dew of the Lord as drops on the grass without the action of a man. All three interpretations strike the same chord. Jewish scholars writing before Jesus recognized that the prophet Jeremiah had predicted the Messiah would be born of a virgin. Understand, too, the virgin birth was not only predicted in the Old Testament, but it is a crucial, essential teaching in the New Testament. You see, if Jesus of Nazareth was the bastard child of Mary's infidelity, or even the legitimate offspring of her marriage to Joseph, there would be no salvation for you and me. Jesus would be a mere mortal, a common sinner, guilty himself, and unable to die for you and me. You see, sin is inherent. It gets passed down. Every person is born with a rebellious, sinful nature. You see, it's not our sin that makes us a sinner. We're a sinner because of our sin. Humans are selfish from the womb. Romans 5 teaches that the first Adam acted for all humanity. Sin was passed down from Adam to us so that the last Adam, Jesus Christ, could save all who would trust in Him. One man acts for all men. You see, the Bible makes a big deal over the fact that sin passes down through the man, not the woman. We get our sin nature from Adam, not from Eve. It's the Father's bloodline that's stained. You see, the reason we're born into sin and wicked from the womb is because of our distant daddy, Adam. This is why the virgin birth is a necessity. Since Joseph was not his blood relative, Jesus avoided the inherent sin from Adam. Jesus received his humanity from Mary, but his spiritual nature came from God. Jesus might have inherited Mary's Jewish nose or her black wavy hair, but he was born with a divine nature. In Jesus, God became flesh. He was born sinless. You see, if Jesus had been born in sin, even if he had lived a perfect life afterwards, he still would have died for his own sin, not our sin. To die a substitutionary death, Jesus had to be guiltless not only from birth, but in birth, the miracle that occurred in the womb of the young maiden enabled Jesus to be as human as his mother Mary, yet as sinless and divine as God in heaven. Understand, the virgin birth and the deity of Jesus are the underpinnings of all Christian theology. These are not optional doctrines. They are absolutely essential. Kick out the cornerstones and the whole house caves in. Without these points of faith, all Christianity becomes a house of cards. Without the virgin birth, Jesus is not the God-man. Rather, He's a con-man. Our salvation becomes a sham. Never mind peace on earth, goodwill toward men. Forget Christmas is for kids. Ignore Christmas cheer and charity. There's no reason for the season if Jesus is not virgin-born. Without the virgin birth, Jesus isn't who he says he is, and he's unable to do what he says he does. Years ago, I was watching a Christmas special on television. It was one of those fun-filled variety shows. You know, it was hosted by Casey Kasem of Radio Fame. But in the closing comments on the show, Casey made this statement. 
He said, Christmas used to be for Christians who worship Jesus. But today, Christmas is for everyone who wants peace on earth and goodwill toward men. When he said that, I almost had a heart attack. I choked on my eggnog. It certainly ruined the show for me. I couldn't have disagreed more. The foundation of Christmas and Christianity are identical. If it, was, it wasn't just any baby in that manger. It was God in that Bethlehem manger. And that makes all the difference in the world. If it were just another child that Mary lay in the hay, then the world is no better off than it was before his birth. Peace on earth, goodwill toward men is just a pipe dream. Christmas without the virgin birth and the deity of Jesus might still be an excuse for people to go and party, but it would no longer be a reason for us to praise. The holiday we call Christmas would become a hollow day, not a holy day. And this is why Satan has worked for so long and for so hard to attack these doctrines. You see, Satan's strategy is twofold. He will encourage us to doubt the truth of the virgin birth and the deity of Jesus. And if he's unsuccessful with that doubt, he'll try to distract us. If he, if he can get us caught up in the stuff around us, we'll never consider the implications of the truth. See, even in Jesus' day, Satan tried to stir up doubts about the Savior's birth. In the Gospels, the Jews tried to drape a shroud of suspicion over Jesus' parentage. Once their leaders were boasting that Abraham was their father. They believed that heaven was earned by heredity. But Jesus set the record straight. He says, if Abraham was truly your spiritual father, you would mimic his faith. And the Jews retaliated. They threw a low blow. In John chapter 8, verse 41, they sneered. We were not born of fornication. We have one Father, God. Notice their evil insinuation. They were suggesting that Jesus was born of an illegitimate birth. Jesus goes on to tell the Jewish leaders that God is his Father and that Satan is their Father. Jesus was never one for mincing words. But obviously, Satan tried his best to attach, attach a sinful stigma to the birth of Jesus. He did so from the very beginnings of Christianity. At least he tried. Another attack on the deity of Jesus and the virgin birth was launched in the first century by a heretical cult known as Gnostics. Even today, Gnostic writings oftentimes pop up, like the Gospel of Thomas or the Gospel according to Judas. They get featured in the secular press in order to contradict Christianity. You're never told that these extra-biblical books were both known by the early church and strongly refuted. In fact, much of the New Testament is aimed at defending Christian faith against Gnosticism. This term Gnostic is from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge. It's a heresy that claims to possess a special knowledge. In short, the Gnostics, they believe that God reveals himself in the form of pixie dust, you might say. It's as if God has sort of sprinkled himself out throughout all the universe. That there's a little of God in all things. 
in the holy men of ages past, and in the angels, and in the mountains, and in the animals, and in the clouds, and in the plants around you, even in man, look for the God within. God is everywhere, in everything. God has sprinkled His pixie dust all across the vast universe. And thus the Gnostics taught that there was nothing unique about Jesus, that He was one of just many ways to get to God, one of God's many revelations. He was a way to God, not the way to God. The Gnostics taught what many New Agers teach today. And yet the apostles in the early church and the scriptures stood staunchly against this heresy. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, Paul took aim at Gnosticism. He writes, For in Him, in Jesus, dwells all the fullness of of the Godhead bodily. In other words, God is no pixie dust. He isn't the scattered pieces of a giant jigsaw puzzle. No, God's essence, God's being, hasn't been sprinkled throughout the universe. No, the totality of God resides in one human body. Imagine all of God, the Creator, the Almighty, who overflows all universes, somehow compressed and compacted, encapsulated into a tiny baby's body. That means if you want to find the revelation of God to man, there's only one place to look. God has placed all the eggs of revelation in one basket, or better yet, in one manger. All that God wanted to say to you and me about life, about Him, about eternity, He has said in the person of Jesus Christ. That first Christmas morning in Bethlehem, do you think anyone grasped the significance that the eternal God, the God who shares His glory with no one, the God who is so holy, no one is allowed in His presence uninvited, that that same God lay sleeping in the straw. You see, Satan encourages doubt, but when doubt fails, he tries to distract. Here's a sly maneuver. What's the difference between doubting a truth and simply ignoring it? I mean, practically speaking, if you believe in the virgin birth and in the deity of Christ, yet ignore it, are you any better off than the person who doesn't believe at all? Neither person worships. Neither bothers to obey, neither the doubter or the ignorer really loves the Lord. If Satan can't get you to doubt the truth of Christmas, the next best thing for him to do is to get you to ignore it. And I'm always surprised at how successful he is at creating this kind of indifference at Christmas. This is the one time of the year when our devotion to Jesus should be at its peak. Too often, Folks act like the inhabitants of Bethlehem that first Christmas morning. God was in the manger. but They were too busy with life to go and to worship Him. i got to tell you, this Christmas has been very, very different at the Adams house. There's been a loss in our family. Every year, Kathy decorates and fills our house with Christmas cheer. And the centerpiece of our decorations is the nativity set that sits on the mantel in our living room. There's a ceramic Joseph and Mary, shepherds and sheep, even a cow or two. 
And then there's a little manger and a baby. But this year is different. There's been a loss in our family. Kathy announced to me the other day that we've lost the baby Jesus. When I heard the news, I was stunned. How in the world do you lose Jesus? And you're a pastor, no less. Now, every time I sit down in the living room, I have this hollow feeling inside. What's a nativity set without Jesus? Joseph, Mary, who cares? It's not right without Jesus at the center. It's not Christmas. And the other day it hit me. Our loss of Jesus wasn't a sudden disaster. We've been negligent for years. It just finally caught up to us. Every year when my boys sit down and they reenact a Christmas story, you wouldn't believe what they do with that little ceramic baby Jesus. They toss him in the air and throw him up in the air and roll him over here and roll him over there. I mean, last year the grandkids got in on the action. And with four toddlers holding those little ceramic pieces, who knows where Jesus went? We haven't been as cautious as we should have been. And now we finally lost him. And what's happened to our ceramic baby Jesus can happen to the real Jesus in your life. As years go by, you can get neglectful. Don't get so used to the storyline that you lose the wonder and the delight that should accompany Christmas. That baby is divine. His conception was miraculous. Jesus should be bowed before and worshipped, not just tossed around. As the years go by, be careful that you don't neglect Him or misplace Him and lose Jesus. One year I was browsing the public high school's December calendar. I listed some pretty mundane events. The day for soccer physicals, a teacher's work day, a dugout club meeting, but the 25th of December was conspicuously blank. Imagine, it's okay to mention a dugout club meeting, but not Jesus' birthday? What has our world come to? It's no secret that our secular world has taken Christ out of Christmas, but what about us? Those of us who affirm our faith in the doctrine, are we any different in practice? Author Joseph Stowell, he writes these probing words. Many of us have found our sensitivities insulted and our convictions offended as court rulings remove the nativity scenes from the lawns of our city halls. It's far easier to object to that swipe of secularism than to realize that for years, many of us have been living through the Christmas season with figuratively no nativity scene on the front lawn of our lives. Caught up in the swirl and storm of the holiday, who of us has taken the time to proclaim Jesus? Our Christmas celebrations include parties and presents, but what about praise and proclamation? You see, though the mechanics of this miracle were imponderable, its meaning was crystal clear. The virgin birth means that the baby Mary laid in the manger is God. Thus, every Christmas should be a time to worship Him. See, here is a holiday that demands that we slow down when everything around us is racing forward. It demands that we carve out time to think. 
Christmas requires that I contemplate a miracle, that I allow myself to be smitten all over again with the wonder and amazement and awe over an event that I can't fully decipher and that I could never figure out. We need to let the force of the Christmas miracle whittle away at our high-mindedness, at our haughtiness. Christmas reminds me that I don't know it all. It is the holiday that humbles me. This year, let the miracle of Jesus' birth bring you back to a simpler faith. Faith, though you don't see. Faith, though you cannot understand. See, to be brought to my knees in simple faith and absolute trust, this is good, good medicine for my soul. Being baffled once a year can be a blessing. Oh, we spend so much time the rest of the year questioning, God, why this? Why that? Why did you allow this? Christmas reels in our curiosity, reminds us that God owes us no explanation. His ways and His wisdom call for us to bow before His omnipotence. You see, Christmas encourages me to rest my probing mind in God's loving arms. I have a motto I've picked up. It reads, I love God because I know Him, but I adore Him because I cannot comprehend Him. Christmas is a time to ponder and praise. Christmas is a time to gawk at God. It's a time to realize the glory and grandeur of the God we serve. Every year at Christmas, we need to realize that we're standing on holy ground. See, Christmas is a time to worship, but it's also a time to witness. For despite the distractions that Satan manufactures at Christmas, it is still the one big time of the year when people are, into, are inclined to think along religious themes. Christmas is when hearts soften, when people become sensitive to spiritual things. At Christmas, the hardest sinner will often consider the Savior. It's been said, the fact remains, our world never comes as close to being in contact with its greatest hope as it does at Christmas time. You and I need to be aware that the Spirit of Christ still takes advantage of the Spirit of Christmas. This is a time of the year to go on the offensive. At Christmas, we need to declare to the world that heaven has invaded earth, that God can be met in a manger at work, at your office party, with the relative who never wants to hear, the neighbor that you've been praying for, it's time to be bold. Why don't you invite them to come with you this week to our Christmas Eve service? Whatever you do, don't shy away from Jesus. You see, it was on that first Christmas Eve that shepherds out in the fields of Bethlehem were suddenly visited by angels announcing the news that Messiah had been born. They ran into the town. They found and worshipped the newborn king. Afterwards, Luke chapter 2, verse 17 says of these shepherds, Now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. And here is our Christmas commission in a nutshell. They made widely known the saying. Let's do the same. Christmas is a time to worship, but it's also a time to witness. It's a time to... For thinking, but it's also a time for speaking up. Remember, God dared King Ahaz 
to ask for a sign. The king could have asked for any sign. A sign so outlandish no one would ever question. They would never question God's faithfulness again. But God gave them just such a sign. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Here's a sign that should never go unnoticed. Let's pay attention to this sign. Adore the Christ this Christmas. And then like the shepherds, make it your job to make Him widely known.